Hidden away under the Bloomberg Building in the City of London lies the remains of the Roman Temple of Mithras, which you can visit. So what does that have to do with drinking? Our guest today is definitely the one to answer that question. I'm Susan Schwartz, your drinking companion, and this is Lush Life Podcast. Every week, we are inspired to live life one cocktail at a time. Francis Grew, one of the fantastic curators of the fabulous Museum of London, knows all about the Romans in London, and more specifically, what the Romans were drinking in London when it was known as Londinium. He's our guest today on this episode sponsored by the City of London. Did you know the City of London is just one square mile and forms the oldest part of London? and was founded by the Romans more than 2,000 years ago? And already back then, it was a major trading port with goods, including wine, coming from all over Europe. How little the change. It even has its own mayor, the Lord Mayor, and government, and is run independently from London. The city has so many things to see and do, before and after work, from quirky independent cafes, to internationally renowned cultural institutions, world-class modern architecture, to historic heritage sites. From high-end shopping to vintage stalls, from street food to Michelin-star restaurants, and of course, from small boozers to glitzy wine and cocktail bars, there's a little bit of everything for everyone. The City of London today is a vibrant part of London with its own unique atmosphere, culture, and history just waiting to be rediscovered. But let's head back in time with Francis to when the Romans ruled the roost. Well, I've worked at the Museum of London for many years. I'm a curator there. My background really is in archaeology, so my particular specialism is in the Roman period, but I deal with much wider periods of history than that, but I guess one always comes back to the things that one learned at the age of seven years old, and in my case, it was Latin, and so I sort of stuck with the Romans. Oh, I was a Latin learner too, very early as well, and so I've, I have been thinking about Romans for a long, long time. Now, I haven't really been thinking about what Romans drink for a long time, and that's what we're going to be chatting about today and what Romans were drinking in London, in the city of London specifically. So I guess my first question is what, what were the Romans doing in London while they were drinking? Well, that's a very interesting question, really, that the uh, Romans, uh, as you know, had uh, sort of started from smallish origins, I suppose, in the city of Rome expanded into Italy, then expanded further right out into the east, into the west, across France, into Germany and so forth. And it seemed almost, I suppose, inevitable that they would turn their attention to Britain and Julius Caesar, 55 and 54 um, BC, tried to uh, conquer Britain, but he didn't succeed for various reasons. And Then a hundred years later in 43 Christian era, the emperor Claudius invaded, invaded Britain in a much more substantial way. A huge army uh, came with him and he gradually conquered most of Southern Britain. Uh, It was not entirely easy for the Romans to conquer Britain. There was a lot of resistance and eventually, um, by 
70 or 80 years later, 120s and so forth, the, um, Romans had got as far as the sort of Hadrian's wall, lowlands of Scotland sort of area. They never really succeeded in conquering Scotland. That was always outside the Roman empire, but, uh, Southern Britons, Northern England, uh, very much past the Roman empire and London was by a long way, the largest city, the largest town in Roman Britain, in Britannia. In fact, it's probably the only place really, maybe York, um, that a visitor from France, Gaul or Northern Italy or something would actually recognize as being a city or a town as having anything like urban values in the way that they thought of them. Did they create a big city in London at that time? Yes, they did. I mean, there, as far as we know, there was very, very little occupation in uh, the area of London before um, the Romans invaded. There were various reasons to do with geography. I suspect that the Thames, for example, to early days was both a means of communication, but also a dividing line as it always has been. Actually, people in South London today don't can distinguish themselves from people in North London, to put it mildly. Um, and so you're learning much here and, but the Rome for the Romans, it was the, uh, river Thames that was so important to them because they saw it was a way of giving access to Britain from the rest of the Roman empire that the ancient world was very, very much based on seaboard transport. Um, we think of things like Roman roads and so forth. And of course, these are hugely important to, you know, in moving armies and so forth across huge, huge distances. But in terms of sort of trade and transport uh, of commodities, goods, it was always seaborne. Um, traffic that was important. It was where that's how it had been in the Greek world, Athens, the islands and so forth, and the coast of Asia Minor, modern Turkey. And then in the Roman period, the Western Mediterranean, Italy, Spain, Southern France, Northern Africa, all these places were linked as it were by sea. So the Romans thought instinctively in terms of sea transport and the river systems of Gaul or France are very good, you know, the main major rivers such as the Rhone, very, very important river flowing into the Mediterranean, but then heading up into the modern city of Lyon and beyond. And then of course the Rhine and the Danube, hugely important rivers. So the Romans, if you like, were able to use these river systems as an extension of their trading network, their seaborne traffic system from the Mediterranean. And so the Thames and the Thames estuary and the future site of London fitted in perfectly to that kind of scenario. And that was the importance really of London and why they made it into a substantial town. You know, tourists sometimes can have a bad reputation for wanting to make the place that they are into a rec kind of recognizable to them and have the foods that they love and the drink that they love. And since we're here to be talking, here to talk about um, what they were drinking, was it a case that they said, all right, we love what we're drinking at home and we're going to bring that wine here? Or did they go immediately to 
let's grow some vineyards here. We like drinking wine. We don't like what the locals are drinking. Um, um, so we're going to create our own. Tell me a little bit about that progression into them starting to drink wine in London. Well, I think it's a mixture of all those things, really. And it's a very complex picture, which, you know, we will never fully understand. But I think we come back to the start to the army and the fact that over 50,000 soldiers actually came to Britain. And London was always quite a military place. Uh, there were always soldiers around part of the time, actually, for much of the time, actually, a substantial fort um, sort of, of soldiers actually in London, but also it was a transit place for soldiers going up the east coast of Britain towards Hadrian's War. And so these people brought with them, because most of these people in the early stages were incomers, some of them had come indeed from as far afield as Italy. But many of them had come more from places like Germany and Gaul, France. So Spain, Greece, two very important Spain, particularly for cavalry. These people brought with them, if you like, a culture. And mm -hmm. that culture in where food was very, very strong in that culture. And of course, wine drinking was part of it. And so a huge amount of wine will have been brought into uh, London to supply the army, either for the troops actually garrisoned here in London or, or for transshipment further away to other Rome garrisons. But of course, the army then had a huge impact, um, because people came to London to work, they were attracted to the center. Some of them came as forced labor, undoubtedly. Some of them came as slaves, enslaved people. Some of them were free, um, British people who came to London to work here and do things. Some of them will be just, you know, just work manual laborers. Some of them will be more than that. And also these people will have married into the incoming population. So London was a hugely cosmopolitan population, not only with, uh, we talked about the military and the British, if you like, um, but there will also be increasing numbers of merchants, traders who will be coming in because it was a new market and attractive market to them. And they were the people who brought, uh, olive oil, fish sauce, and of course, wine, and they traded in it, they dealt with it supply the army with these other people. So it was a, a sort of a change in culture, an introduction, if you like, of a Mediterranean style of cuisine and taste in drinks and everything else, but actually not a direct copy of Mediterranean, you know, that the cuisine would not have been exactly the same as you find in Campania, in Pompeii or Rome, for example. It would already have been adapted and converted, um, as it had gone across France and Germany and everything. So it would have been a sort of amalgam of things already when it came into London, but it would have been something fundamentally different from people who had lived in Britain before Britons that we know that they drank beer. It was very important to them, but so far as we know, 
they didn't actually drink wine. I'm no doubt one day, maybe somebody will find evidence for it. But at the moment, uh, we know about the beer, but wine, no, although we know actually that they were beginning it before the Romans came uh, to conquer Britain, um, the elites, the, um, and so forth were beginning themselves to import wine from the continent because it reinforced their status as the top people in their society. So it was something new um, that came in part of the kind of Roman culture. And I think it's actually the more we look into and learn about um, the people who lived in London. Um, you know, one time archaeology certainly was very much focused on the sort of the buildings and the places and the material, you know. Um, whereas now I think we look much more at the people, their social, how they lived and what they did. And it's becoming more and more obvious that an incredibly cosmopolitan population lived here. These people brought all this stuff with them, including wine. I guess one of the questions that I you know, should have asked at the beginning was, how did the Romans drink wine? Was it like their water? When you think of gin production in the you know 1600s, people were drinking gin because the water, you know, or beer because the water was so bad. Um, was it the same kind of thing where it was watered, or I don't know, I, I'm just guessing it watered down wine, or you know, how how was it drunk? Well, this is a very interesting question, and undoubtedly, um, the poor quality of the water supply would have encouraged people to drink wine. There's absolutely no doubt about that. We know that from writers who talk about estate management and so forth, um, make it clear that huge quantities of wine was drunk. It was probably uh, fairly um, low in alcohol compared with what we're familiar with today as type wine. Um, and in fact, actually, for in the Roman army, huge amounts of wine were, was consumed. It would appear, actually, uh, they, they, we read, actually, of Hosca, which is as the drink of the soldiers, which is a, um, a more vinegar sort of um, thing. And in fact, in that context, it's quite interesting, I think, to recall um, the in from the Bible the scene when Jesus Christ is on the cross and has been crucified. And there is a passage where a soldier, a Roman soldier, comes up to him and offers him, offers Jesus, a, uh, a sponge containing, and it's usually translated as vinegar, and it's usually assumed, you know, that this is an insult, whereas in fact, actually, I think this is probably, you know, uh, a sign of comradeship, you know, so that is taking pity on Jesus on the cross and giving that. So I think so. So that, that <laughs> the interest, there may be a slight sideline, but I think it shows the quantity that's there. So that's, that's one thing. That's, that's, if you like, the sort of the ordinary rough kind of country wine, which is produced on estates in huge quantities. The other side of the thing, I think, is that there was undoubtedly, um, in the top echelons of society, a taste for wine drinking of a very, very different order. And this was, uh, people who who wanted to collect and drink and indulge in um, the top-class wines. Now, the Romans always believed that their wine had come from Greece. This is how they always believed it, and it happened. And 
In fact, it's quite interesting that, that archaeology is beginning to suggest that the very origins of winemaking, and we must distinguish, of course, winemaking from grape growing, that just having grapes is not necessarily indicative that people are making wine. But the, as far as I can understand it, the archaeological evidence is tending to suggest that the origins of wine come from the Near East, from Turkey, Syria, perhaps further east into um, Afghanistan, these kind of places. So uh, Iran and so forth, that sort of area. And then it, uh, and then it would have come into Greece and then into uh, Italy. And so it may well be that archaeology is kind of supporting what the Romans believed that in the Greek world, there is a huge amount about uh, wine. We know it was hugely important. One only has to go to um, the British Museum or um, museums in Athens or wherever it is, and you will see a huge amount of apparatus, wine cups, big pratis, they're called, which are the big bowls for serving wine and so forth. All this was part of the, of the, of the apparatus. And there was a tradition of making very, very fine wines. And the Romans, We've talked about how Britons, if you like, took over Roman culture. Well, before that, of course, the Romans themselves have very much taken over Greek culture. And wine drinking was one of those aspects of the, of the classical culture, which they took over. And indeed, Greek wines uh, were very sought after in the Roman period of the time when we're talking about Rome, Britain, or maybe a little bit earlier, but Greek wines are very important. Now, there was one important thing which you alluded to, Susan, actually, which is quite important, and that is, in the classical world, uh, wine was normally diluted, and this is why a lot of this kit that you get in the Greek world is for mixing wine with water. It wouldn't be drunk neat, it would be mixed very often with additional spices and herbs and everything like that as well. And then it would be served. And in fact, the, the Greeks and uh, the Romans, of course, cast scorn, really. They were very scornful of the North Europeans, the, uh, the Gauls and so forth, because they drank their wine neat. And to them, it was terrible. You know, it was a a symbol of barbarity. You know, it's funny that the French and Italian wine drinking, even then, they're co competing when it was just being introduced. This is absolutely right, actually. And much of what we know about the real heyday, it seems almost, of the uh, Italian and the Roman wine industry was um, in the sort of the first century um, Christian era. Uh, and, and a bit later, but these were the real heyday of it, where we have a lot of information in the poets, writers and so forth. And in fact, it's becoming quite clear that although the real heartland of Italian wine production was the sort of the Campanian region and to the north, that uh, southern French wines were beginning to be important and people were going to beginning to recognize them as something that was, you know, well worth drinking. So coming back to London, and I'm using in quotations English wine or, or Roman wine found in Londinium, were those grapes brought from what was Gaul or France or Italy then? And 
grown and planted in England or at, at that time, obviously, or were there grapes already growing there? Well, we don't really know whether there were, whether there were grapes actually growing in Britain. There may, there may well have been. But of course, the uh, great grapes don't necessarily produce good wine, you know, mm -hmm. but uh, and there is specific varieties of grape that produce decent wine. Now, in London, we've kind of seen this background of how um, London was a, uh, a centre for trade and dealing in wine. Interestingly, actually, I mean, it would have been um, very analogous, actually, to the present London, you know, that London for hundreds of years has been a great centre for trading and dealing in these great firms like Berry Brothers and so forth, Justerini and Brooks, it's great wine, wine dealers in London. And so that is a tradition which has its origins, if you like, in the Roman period. But it was quite clear that in many, in many aspects of culture, the Romans tried because they were very uh, Roman traders and merchants, were very aware of the costs of transport. We've talked about how the difficulty of bringing stuff from the Mediterranean, so up the river system, so very, very expensive. So they were aware of the costs and they were always on the lookout for being able to produce it locally. And they were actually very successful in some things that, for example, they found that they could produce a lot of the pottery for use in the kitchen, you know, particular types of mixing bowls and so forth. Well, they didn't need to import that. They, uh, they, they could produce it successfully locally. The up higher grade stuff was harder. So that always had to be imported more expensive, more desirable. It was more expensive and so on. And it's quite clear now that they made an attempt in same, for the same reasons, the same way, to produce wine locally in Britain as well, in the region of London. And the evidence for this is quite remarkable, actually, because it's very difficult as an archaeologist to identify a vineyard. There have been a couple of vineyards that have one, really, one major vineyard, which has been identified in Northamptonshire, I think it's a bit, anyway, a bit to the north of London. And the archaeologists there found trenches, bedding plots, and so forth, where vines had been established and, and, and set in the ground. And they also found remains of um, the juice or whatever mm -hmm. it is, you know, these the grapes that were suitable for producing wine. So we have quite good evidence, but it's very, very rare that you find that. So it was great excitement that it, one day we were looking through the stores of the museum and we found some very interesting pots, or in fact, wine jars, actually. Now, we looked very carefully at these wine jars and we know quite a lot about where pottery comes from. We can trace it from the clay fabric, you know, you can go mm. and find the sort of clay and so you know where it comes from. So we were very, very surprised when we found that these wine jars, which were of types that were normally made overseas in Spain, Italy, France, were made just to the north of London, just uh, near Edgware, which is on the north outskirts of London. So they were made there. 
And these, and these journals are very, very distinctive. They're very large amphorae, as the Romans called them. And they're in two types. One is like a sort of a huge cylindrical thing with a pointed spike, two small handles, and um, weighs about um, 30 kilograms or something. So it's a, it's a big thing. It would have carried a lot of wine. Very thick walled. The other is more like a sort of a large pitcher. It's like a very big jar. It's flat-based, not, spi not spiked. Um, it has handles and it's much wider. It's not cylindrical, it's wider. So two very different types of, uh, of amphora, of wine jar. And these relate to two very different traditions and places of making wine. The former, the tall cylindrical spiky one, much more Italian. Well, that's the typical, the classic Italian form of wine. The other one, the fatter, squatter, flat-based one, Southern French. That's the typical uh, wine jar produced in the areas of uh, Marseille, uh, in particular, huge center for winemaking in the Roman period, and the Rhone Valley. So very distinct, two different things. Now, you may say, well, maybe they just made these things in Britain just for decanting wine. You know, they imported the wine and then they just poured it into these things. Well, that is, I suppose, possible, but the evidence from elsewhere in the Roman Empire isn't that at all, really. It's not that the, these wine jars were always made very, very close to where they produced the wine. They were for transport. They're for primary transport. They're not um, for decanting and secondary transport. Um, it very often the potteries in southern France and Italy are on the same estates as where they actually produce the wine. So assuming it's that same model, same process in Britain, we have, I think, pretty certain evidence for an attempt to make wine uh, in London, just the north of London, and what I find exceptionally interesting is that there must have been probably two, at least two winemakers from these two entirely different traditions, the Italian and the Southern friend, both of whom had come to London and attempted to make their own wine. And to return to your original question, Susan, my guess is that they brought their vines with them, their you know, their vines would be carefully wrapped, transported, and they would be sown um, in the soil uh, of southern Hertfordshire, London. Maybe the Romans did it deliberately because they wanted to see, you know, which of these two methods, they no doubt they quite possibly had different wine-making methods as well, which of them, if either of them, would be successful uh, better in the, in the British situation. Okay, hopefully you don't hate this question, but being the cynic that I am, um, I guess, and this kind of leads to how difficult it is to understand wine from an archaeological aspect, is maybe those two style of jugs or, or amphorae um, were used to collect oil or something else. Is there a way to find out what was actually inside those? You know, is there a little scent of, of, of grape or is there some residual 
stuff. Sorry for my ignorance in the actual words, or should I say archaeological terms you use, but are there remnants of grape residue or something like that that says, okay, this was for a drink that was made with grapes? Yes, we talked about how these amphorae are distinctive to areas. And actually, the shapes are also very distinctive for the content. So, for example, an olive oil amphora is usually very much larger than the wine amphora. Um, and, but again, the same principle applied. This, they were made for, for transport. They were made very close to where the olive oil was produced. Fish sauce. Another important commodity in the Roman period, very, very distinctive shape of amphora or a different region. How do we know about the contents though in Matchstrom? Well, there are two things. The first is, yes, sometimes we um, can look at the residues on the inside of these. It's there, this is a science which is very much in its infancy because, um, we're looking as a sort of organic chemistry and a lot of the, uh, the kind of the more volatile type thing, like the alcohol, for example, you know, will all have gone, disappeared, but people are beginning to do that. And there have been quite successful identifications of particularly really olive oil rather than wine. One of the difficulties that you have with that, in addition to the chemistry is that, uh, Roman amphorae were generally lined with pit, which probably gave to wine a sort of a retsina type, um, taste. So we have to bear that in mind. And also we have to bear in mind, fortunately, as with the examples that we've got, that a lot of these were collected years and years ago. Um, these were excavated 50 years ago, uh, and people just scrub them clean, unfortunately, without because there was no possibility of doing that. But there is another way we can work on contents, and that's actually been very, very profitable, really. And that is the Romans very helpfully often wrote labels on the outside of the amphora. And these are extraordinary documents, really, which give us information, um, certainly about the products. There are many types of product in addition to wine, actually, which we would never have guessed from the, this would be written on an example of that. It's a product called defrutum, which is a, a, a sort of a grape, a grape juice. It's more of a sort of a grape puree of grape juice, little alcohol content, which is used extensively in, in cooking, but we, we, we see that written on the outside of some of these amphorae. So, so the writing is very helpful because it tells us the product. It sometimes tells us things about the weight of the product. It tells us where it came from. It tells us about the estate that produced it. And sometimes it tells us about the shipper as well. So people have actually spent their lives kind of analyzing these things, which are often found in large quantities on shipwrecks and shipwrecks in the Mediterranean. That's been a big source of knowledge of the, of this, with the increase of underwater archeology. span So that's very, very important. So that's how we are able to identify these things. We love those crafty Romans for putting it right on the bottle. Exactly. Now, 
Did they ever put on what grapes they were using to make the wine? Well, I wish that we did. I mean, that's something that we just don't know, actually. The, the tracing, as it were, from the Roman period through medieval times into something that we would currently recognize and know and identify. To my knowledge, nobody has actually done that yet. I, it may well be possible, particularly as things as sort of like DNA analysis is increasingly added to it. And it'd be very, very exciting actually, if, if that were possible, if you could identify the actual, you know, and actually matches up with Chardonnay or something like that. To me. I know that would be fab. <laughs> now, other than the amphorae and the vessels to cart around the, the wine, did you find in London you know, bottles or glasses and, or things that would show how the Romans drank the wine or enjoyed it. Again, as in, as in the world today, we have utilitarian glassware bottles and so forth, but at the other end, there are some very luxurious vessels as well, which are very often to do with drinking. And some of these in, uh, would have been beer glasses. You know, we've talked about how Britons, you know, had, had a beer industry. We have to remember actually that the beer industry continued throughout Britain. In fact, actually, I think it would be fair to say that, um, the Romans were actually here for four centuries after all, and towards the end of that period, beer drinking was much more important than wine drinking in Britain, but we're actually talking about the early part of this period. And yes, indeed we had glassware. We also have, um, ceramic vessels, ceramic beakers, lots of them. The glasses are quite recognizable in many cases to us as sort of tumbler shapes. We get those there. We, we, we would be quite happy to drink out of them today. The Romans understood cutting of glass. So we have cut glass, um, tumblers, which, which are not unlike a sort of a whiskey tumbler, probably be the wine rather than the beer glass. Interestingly, some of them are much more sort of enclosed, sort of little cup shaped things really. Uh, and we do sometimes get in the ceramic ones, nice lettering on the outside, which has a sort of a, uh, uh description, B-Bay or something, cheers, you know, good health. I love that. Uh -huh. So you, you do get those as well. They're nice. Now, I remember you telling me, cause we met before that they weren't just drinking wine for fun, but it was also used in their religious practice. Can you just tell me a little bit more about that? Well, that's right. I mean, we, I, I suppose in addition to sort of convivial purposes, if you like, the two uses of wine actually in, in alcohol were in, uh, medicine for one thing, but we have to remember that the sort of a lot of the herbs and so forth would have been actually used. Um, for medicinal purposes, and one imagines too that, as until quite recent times, before the introduction of chloroform and everything like that, you gave people huge doses of alcohol to knock them out if you're going to amputate their leg or something. So, medicinal purposes is important, but also there is the religious purpose, and that, of course, is not entirely separate from the convivial purpose because. We have to think that after all the, uh, in the classical world, there was a God of wine, Dionysus to the Greeks or Bacchus to the Romans. And we have actually in the museum of London, a couple of rather nice pieces that relates to the God Bacchus, that we have a, a nice statue group, which shows a stone marble statue group, which shows Bacchus and his followers. Somewhat the worse for drink, actually staggering along, you know, with a 
vine branch above their heads. We have another couple of a nice little figurine of the god and another rather nice little uh, silver plaque too, which shows that's not the god himself or what perhaps one of his followers actually um, carrying a the thyrsus was the uh, sort of wand that was particularly associated with Bacchus, which was like a star, but had vine leaves twirled around the end of the thing. And, and, and Bacchus was, you know, very much worshipped and important. And now he was, of course, celebrated and worshipped for his convivial side, for what he, what he brought. But there was also the side to Bacchus that he was seen as a sort of a liberator. And this is, uh, goes right the way back into the ancient history, really, of Dionysus and Bacchus that uh, where the Dionysus was a sort of, a, if one remembers the mythology, made with a slightly later appearance than most of the other gods. We've had, they had Zeus and all the rest of it for a long time, and then Dionysus appeared. And Dionysus was always seen as being something of an outsider who produced this different element in life, which provided release from the daily uh, life. It also was often seen by the authorities as being something very destructive and dangerous because under the influence of drink, people would be seen to be stepping outside the normal bounds of civilized behavior. So it was a, a very big problem for them. It was also a problem, certainly in Greece and also in Italy, actually, when Bacchus made his appearance in Italy in the second, third centuries BC. Um, that it was associated sometimes with women. And this, of course, was a very big problem. And it's become, to the, to the Romans, and it's become quite a big focus of study, actually, by predominantly women writers and um, classicists who are looking at the position of women in society. Because, uh, it's certainly the case that when one looks back to the, uh, to the original myth of how King Pentheus was torn to pieces, you know, by women under the influence of a uh, drink of Dionysus, followers of Dionysus. And so it's many people now see this actually as a, uh, a sort of a strong anti-female feeling of predominantly male society concerned, worried, um, about the release that this new religion is given to women whom they wish to have repressed and keep repressed in their society. So it's, so it's very important. And as in many other societies and many other cultures, wine drinking, because of its obvious intoxicating effects, is seen to release the, the spirit, release the mind, to have closer contact, if you like, with the spiritual as opposed to um, the, uh, the physical mundane. Now, we've spoken about how it could sometimes be seen as a threat to society, but in later times, it was perhaps actually seen as something kind of slightly more more analogous to a, a serious, in inverted commas, a religious experience that uh, we have, for example, in London, a temple to the god Mithras. This, in fact, was an all-male religion, for what it's worth. Um, but there was a temple to Mithras in London. And 
But when they excavated the site, they found a very nice um, sort of little silver canister and strainer, which seemed to be associated with the infusing of particular spirits, alcoholic spirits, combinations of wine and herbs, one imagines, which would have been used in the worship of uh, Mithras and would have given his followers, if you like, this release from the practical and the, humdrum, the everyday, to have this experience with uh, their God, with their God Mithras. And, it, and it's probably not a coincidence that after the temple of Mithras fell into disuse at the end of the third century Christian era, um, that the temple, we believe, we're not entirely certain, it seems very likely, was converted into a temple to the god Bacchus. So in fact, this continuation really goes through this. I don't think it was a coincidence that um, this Mithraic temple, which relied a lot on the experience and this very personal experience of God, in the later, uh, very end of Roman Britain, became a temple to Bacchus, to the god, the, the old god, which the ancient god of release from the everyday, the everyday world. And it's there, and it's from that temple of Bacchus, or likely temple of Bacchus, that the stone sculpture to which I referred comes. And of course, you can today go and visit the temple of Mithras. It's uh, preserved underground in the new Bloomberg building near the Bank of England in the city of London. I love that. I love that there's a temple to Bacchus right in London, in the city of London. Exactly. I can't wait to go and visit it. Um, I think we've we've pretty much delved as, as far as we can go into the Romans drinking wine, unless there's any other tidbits or something that you think we should know other than, than everything you've told us no, already. I mean, I think, I think we've, we've talked a lot about Roman wine. I think, I think it's, it's of interest, really, in that it seems to fall into a pattern of the wine industry, wine growing in Britain for thousands and thousands of years. You know, that uh, as we all know, Britain is kind of on the fringe of the area where you can successfully grow wine. And this has always been this edge position which has persisted in Britain for 2000 years that meant that we now, of course, learn a lot about sort of global warming, climate change and everything like that rises in temperatures. There were fluctuations in the past, perhaps it uh, was in, in the Roman period. Maybe it was, it was slightly warmer. We don't, I think the jury is very much out on that. I wouldn't like to comment. But of course, just rising temperatures doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be great for growing grapes because it may mean a much wetter climate as we are beginning to see at the moment. Actually, we seem to have a lot of rain. So it's not an unmitigated um, bonus really on growing wine. But throughout kind of history, really, people in Britain have tried to grow wine successfully. And I think probably very analogous to the kind of experiments that we see in the Roman period. And we can think of, I think, King Henry II, for example, in the medieval, medieval time, he tried to get grapes grown vineyards on his estate. Certainly the Marquis of Salisbury, um, who lived at Hatfield House, 
which is not very far from um, North London, um, he most certainly had quite an ambitious scheme to uh, grow wine uh, there. He had vineyards on his estate, and to where my gathers, it was quite successful that they produced quite a lot of palatable stuff in the uh, in the nineteenth century as well. People um, grew wine. There was actually some wine production, I believe, in in South Wales. Believe it in the in the end of the nineteenth century, which actually found its way into London clubs and so forth. So it must have been quite palatable. So it kind of fits into that. Although I think what that that we now are kind of at a very exciting time in terms of um, English wine because maybe we're helped to some extent by the um, changing climate but we're certainly helped enormously by the uh, great scientific improvements in understanding great varieties and so forth and so for this really for the first time that we're seeing in England grape and wine production on a really significant scale we're um, beginning to see the, the sort of the tens and Twenties, thousands, much of hundred thousand bottle production on some of these estates. Um, interestingly, I believe a French champagne house has actually even opened a vineyard now in southern England. So, the English wine industry is really beginning to go places. The world I do find quite interesting, actually, is that um, in the, the much of the output of the English wine industry is of course in uh, white wines, predominantly um, sparkling wine, which wins prizes all over the world uh, for mm -hmm. uh, cham uh, champagne type wine, but it is predominantly white. And in the Roman period too, uh, it was white wine that was predominantly drunk. That these great vintages, the Falernia and so forth of the ancient world were white wines. The great difference though is that they were sweet wines, that the grapes would have been grown late in the picked late in the season, so very saturated. So they're the opposite of of what we have today. Mm. But nonetheless, it is a white wine. And I find that a pleasant, pleasing sort of turning of the circle. You know, of course I feel that as well. You know, it's always it's it's great to think that, uh, you know, thousands of years ago, Berrios brothers uh, could have been, have, have a shop in the same spot as Berry brothers has today, you know, and, and they're making the same thing and selling the same thing. So it has been such a lesson today. I want to thank you so much for your time. And we will all visit you thank at you. the Museum of London and see some of those things that you mentioned, plus so many other things. As I said, it's it's such a fantastic museum, and for all of those who haven't been there for the past two years, it's time to time to start visiting things again. So um, I know that uh, if I have any more questions about Roman wine, I know who to come to. And uh, again, thank you for being on the show. It's been a pleasure. It's been great fun talking to you. You too. Lovely. Thanks so much to Francis for being on the program. I cannot wait to head down to the Museum of London to check out Bacchus in all his glory. 
The Square Smile campaign is designed to raise awareness of the benefits of returning to the City of London and face-to-face interaction as firms increasingly give their staff more flexibility on where they locate through hybrid working. It showcases the City's vibrant offerings, ranging from world-class culture, heritage, cuisine, entertainment, retail, architecture, bars, and so much more. Visit www.squaresmile.london for great ideas of places to visit, to see, discover, and drink. We definitely have to toast to Francis and the Romans for our cocktail of the week. Francis's favorite cocktail is an old-fashioned, but we're going to mirror the Romans. They brought wine to London from afar, just like the City of London Distillery makes their old-fashioned by using a Blackpool-born sweet mash and sweets that might be popular here, but were created elsewhere first. Our cocktail of the week is the City of London Distillery's Verter's Original Bank Hall Old Fashioned. You'll need the following ingredients. 50 mils of Bank Hall Sweet Mash, 10 mils of Verter's Original Sugar Syrup, one dash of Angostura bitters, and an orange zest for garnish. To make the Verter's Original Syrup, you need 100 mils of water and 10 candies. Just add the water and candy to a pot and heat it over the stove. When the candies have melted, you have Verter's Syrup. I don't add extra sugar as I find it sweet enough, but you can always add more. Now place all the ingredients in a mixing glass, add ice, and then stir, stir, stir. Then strain it into a rocks glass with one gorgeous piece of ice and garnish with the orange zest. Now, bibere, as the Romans would say. You'll find this recipe, more City of London distillery recipes, and all the cocktails of the week at alushlifemanual.com, where you'll find most of the ingredients in our shop. COVID got the best of me for a few weeks, but hopefully I'm back and ready to bring you more and more. So if you live for Lush Life, make sure you head out to the bars and restaurants you love and tell them how much you love them. Theme music for Lush Life is by Stephen Shapiro and used with permission. And Lush Life is always and will be forever produced by Evo Terra and Simpler Media Productions. Which leaves me to say the wise words of Oscar Wilde, all things in moderation, including moderation. And always drink responsibly. Next time, you'll be meeting another fabulous person or persons in the drinks industry. Until that time, bottoms up. <laughs>